from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, October 8th. Today, new questions about Breonna Taylor's case, the challenge for college students trying to vote, and a tale of two leaders with coronavirus. Senator Harris, in the case of Breonna Taylor, was justice done? You have two minutes. I don't believe so. And I've, I've talked with Breonna's mother, Tamika Palmer, and her family, and... On Wednesday night in the vice presidential debate, Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence were asked about Breonna Taylor and the fact that no police officers have been charged in her death. Well, our heart breaks for the loss of innocent, any innocent American life. And the family of Breonna Taylor has our sympathies. But I, I trust our justice system, a grand jury that refused the evidence. And it really is remarkable that as a former prosecutor... You would assume that an impaneled grand jury looking at all the evidence got it wrong. But uh, you're entitled to your opinion, Senator. Pence was basically saying we should trust the grand jury's decision. But what he didn't mention was that there are new questions about that decision, based in part on audio recordings that have now been released from the actual grand jury proceedings. Marissa Ayati has been reporting on what we can learn from that audio. So last month, we got the results of a grand jury investigation into the fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor in her apartment in March. There were three Louisville officers who fired their weapons that night, and none of them were directly charged in Taylor's killing. One officer, Brett Hankison, who was fired this summer, was indicted on wanton endangerment charges, and that's for allegedly endangering three of Taylor's neighbors when bullets went into their apartment. But the other two officers who fired and whose bullets are believed to have hit Taylor were not charged with anything. I think a lot of people saw that and were really surprised and in many cases frustrated at the fact that there were not even charges against these officers, let alone convictions. So what information are we hearing now that gives a little bit more insight into what actually happened there? So last week, we got about 15 hours of grand jury recordings, and that is the evidence that prosecutors told the grand jury about what happened that night. And It gave a lot of information about what exactly the jurors heard, but it actually didn't answer a lot of questions at the same time. And there are still a lot of protests and a lot of questions about what the grand jury heard and how much room they had to bring charges or not bring charges against these officers. Well, I just want to back up for a second and make sure that I understand. So so a grand jury proceeding, that's basically like when they're trying to decide whether or not someone is going to have charges brought against them. It's like a, a pretty preliminary part of, of the criminal charging process, right? Yeah. So a grand jury proceeding is different from a normal trial. In a trial, the jury hears from both sides. They hear from prosecutors and they hear from defense attorneys. 
But a grand jury is convened just to decide whether to indict. So they hear from prosecutors. Those prosecutors give them evidence. They walk them through what charges they could bring, and they make suggestions. And my understanding was that usually these grand jury hearings are supposed to be super secret. They are. So legal experts say that it's to protect a lot of people involved, that it is to shield the reputations of people who are investigated but not ultimately charged, also to protect witnesses, to protect grand jurors from outside influence or from potential threats if it's a high-profile case like this one. And it's pretty unusual that the audio would be released in this case. And Partly, that was because a judge ordered it to happen. And at the same time, there was an anonymous grand juror who also filed a court motion asking for it to be made public and asking for the ability to talk publicly. Um, That grand juror has accused Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who prosecuted this case, of using grand jurors as a shield to deflect accountability. So there was a lot of pressure on the attorney general's office in this case to file the proceedings with the court so everyone could hear them. So what did we learn from these recordings about the process that went into this? So we heard from the witnesses that talked to the grand jurors, and the grand jurors also heard recordings of some previously conducted interviews, mostly with officers in the case. And one of the main takeaways was that there was a lot of disagreement about whether or not officers knocked and announced themselves when they went into Brianna Taylor's home. Well, before Mr. Wilkins did, I mean, we were announcing police, search warrant, police. I know I said it several times. I heard other people who have said it as well. The grand jurors heard from several officers who were really adamant that they announced their presence, that they knocked for up to two minutes. How long do you think in between each set of knocks? I mean, it began as a, it began as a knock, 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 police, you know, knock, wait for who is it? I can hear somebody like, hey, can you please open this, please? And at the same time, they heard from six witnesses, mostly neighbors, who said that they did not hear anything at all. He knows for a fact he did not hear anyone saying Louisville Metro Police Department or anything prior to being awakened. But the first thing they heard was gunshots. Sometime after midnight on March the 13th, all of a sudden there were loud noises coming from the front door area, which sounded like the door rang or gunshots, but she wasn't sure because she was startled from being awakened and the noise happened all at once. And, and why is that question of whether or not the police knocked before they entered Breonna Taylor's apartment, why is that important? So when police broke down the door to Breonna Taylor's apartment, her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, fired one shot with a gun that he legally possessed. And he says that he didn't know that the police were law enforcement, that he thought that they were intruders and that he was firing in self-defense. And Daniel Cameron said that the the officers who actually shot Taylor were justified in firing because Walker had shot first. So the question of whether or not Kenneth Walker and Breonna Taylor knew it was police breaking down their door has had a big impact on how the public perceives this case and what happened when that door opened. So that was one part of the grand jury trial that we're hearing about from these tapes. What else should we learn? Please say your full name and spell your last name. Brett Hankison, H-A-N-K. 
So the grand jury heard from Brett Hankison, the former officer who was fired and is now charged in the case. And he describes how when the door to Breonna Taylor's apartment opened, he thought that he saw someone there with an AR-15 or a similar rifle. I saw darkness in the apartment, but then I saw an immediate illumination of fire. Um, And what I saw at the time was a figure in a shooting stance. Uh, and it looked as if he was holding, he or she was holding an AR-15 or a long gun, a rifle type of gun. And that he ran away, he ran back outside, and he started firing his weapon in the direction that he thought that person was. He fired through a sliding glass door. And he says that the reason he did that is because he heard a lot of gunfire. He thought that it was the person in the house shooting at his fellow officers. And then it almost is like the firing went from boom, 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 boom at the door, or when I'm clearing the hallway, to it sounded like rapid... Uh, it like rapid fire from, from like an AR-15, which in my mind and he says that he thought that his colleagues were being executed, and that's the word that he used, and that's how he describes his decision to shoot. But all I could hear was the firing, I saw the flash, and I thought they were just being executed because I knew they were helping John, because John said I'm hit, I'm down. But presumably, if Breonna Taylor's boyfriend only fired one shot back, then the sound that he was hearing was his fellow police officers who were also shooting. Right. The reason his testimony is so striking is because his interpretation of what happened is not what we now know to have happened. We now know that Kenneth Walker, Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, fired one shot. He did not have an AR-15. He had a more standard gun that you would keep in your home. And that the other few dozen shots that were fired came from the officers. So his interpretation of what happened and his reason for firing was based on an apparent misunderstanding of what was going on in that apartment. And we learned that grand jurors had a lot of questions. They asked things like why there was no body camera video in the case. He arrives later in the middle of the events after the calls go out. Yes. No, I don't have any bycam footage available of the event, the incident of the breaching the door. They uh, sometimes were told that there wasn't enough time to watch all of the available video of something. In one case, you hear somebody from the attorney general's office say, "We don't have time to watch that." We, we don't want to show all the videos, but just because of time. And somebody else in the room, probably a grand juror, says, we got time. (laughs) And they move on. And attorneys for Taylor's family have pointed to that and said, look, the prosecutors didn't answer jurors' questions. They wanted to know more about the case. They were confused. They found conflicting information. And prosecutors just moved on. And what do you think that tells us? about this whole process and about the intentions behind this process? I think it's likely to still raise a lot of questions about how aggressive prosecutors were in bringing charges in this case. So grand juries really are led by the prosecutors. They are the legal advisors to them. They have a lot of influence on what charges eventually get get brought or, or don't get brought. And so what exactly 
was said to the jurors and how much information they got has a lot of bearing on how the public perceives this case and whether people feel confident that it was handled fairly and that the jurors had every available chance to bring whatever charges they thought were were fair and warranted. And that, frankly, is surprising for me to hear because it feels like if you're the prosecutor in this scenario, your job is basically to try to prosecute people. And and at least I would assume that you were trying to move as hard as you can in that direction, which can bring its own problems. But in this scenario, it seems like even the prosecutors were like, we're, or at least it appeared that, that they gave the impression that they weren't actually trying to prosecute as forcefully as they could have. Yeah. So Attorney General Cameron initially said that he walked grand jurors through all six of Kentucky's homicide charges and that the grand jurors agreed with prosecutors that the wanton endangerment charges were the only ones that were warranted in this case. The grand jury was given all of the evidence, presented all of the information, and ultimately ultimately made the determination uh, that uh, Detective Hankinson uh, was the one to be indicted. But he kind of reframed that in subsequent statements. Well, basically, your question is about whether uh, we recommended any murder charges against uh, Cosgrove and Mattingly. uh, And the answer is no. Uh, Ultimately, our judgment is that the uh, charge that we could prove at trial beyond a reasonable doubt was for wanton endangerment uh, against uh, Mr. Hankinson. He later said that he only recommended the endangerment charges and clarified that he did not recommend homicide charges. So he has kind of put the decision on the grand jury and said, look, we presented all the evidence to them and this is what they decided. And ultimately, we still don't know exactly what prosecutors told the grand jurors because that part of the proceedings was not recorded. And legal analysts that we talked to said that that leaves some questions unanswered. It's an important part of the proceedings, and it it certainly doesn't answer the public's questions. The grand juror who has been pushing to be able to talk publicly about this has made clear that they feel like it's important to be able to speak beyond just what's in the recording so that they can share their interpretation of what happened. And I think we we may still hear from, from that juror and others if the court rules that they can talk. There is scrutiny of, of Daniel Cameron because he is viewed as pretty political. He's kind of a rising star in the Republican Party. He's a protege of Mitch McConnell. He talked at the Republican National Convention this summer. So I think there's particular attention being paid to how he handles this and, and sensitivity to whether political considerations are included or not included. And so the fact that we're getting a better understanding of what was happening behind the scenes in this case, can it change anything for the prosecution against these officers, for Breonna Taylor's family? Or is this just helpful information, even though the whole thing is done at this point? It's not really clear yet. The attorneys for Breonna Taylor's family are demanding that a new prosecutor reopen the case and convene a separate grand jury. But as of today, there's no indication that that's likely to happen. But there is still a federal investigation into this. There is an FBI probe that's looking into potential civil rights investigations. And that looks into how the search warrant for Taylor's home was obtained in the first place. So we could still see federal charges. And I think the outcome of the state investigation is likely to only put uh, more attention on the results of the federal investigation. 
And I also wonder whether there are conversations about grand jury trials themselves and how those trials work in the criminal justice system and the problems that they sometimes present. I think that we're definitely starting to see some conversations about that. The fact that so much of these trials are secret, I think people are starting to question. And the fact that even in this case, the one really important part of it apparently wasn't recorded at all has also gotten a lot of notice. And I think we're in a time where there's a lot of demand for transparency around the criminal justice system generally, but particularly in police killings and police killings of Black Americans in particular. And people really want to be able to kind of judge for themselves how they're being handled. And, and, and I think people are, are kind of starting to look at this and and feel like there is a lot about how these situations are handled that they often just don't know. Marissa Ayati is a national and breaking news reporter for The Post. Michelle, you know, it feels like just a really hard time to be a college student right now. So many college students are dealing with outbreaks on campus. They're dealing with trying to figure out remote learning. They're making big decisions about whether or not now is a good time to be in college at all. But you've been reporting on what it's like to vote when you are in college right now. Right. It is a really difficult time to be a college student for all of those reasons you mentioned. And it's especially difficult to try to figure out how to vote. I mean, voting itself is really confusing just for the rest of us right now. But when you're a college student, it's probably your first time voting and you don't know where you're going to be in the next couple weeks, whether there's going to be an outbreak of coronavirus on your campus, whether you may be sent home where you're supposed to register to vote. All of these are really major questions that are just totally confusing. I'm Michelle Yehi Lee. I'm a reporter on national politics, and I've been covering voting access issues. And it seems like a lot of this is coming from the fact that there is a lot of geographic confusion for college students, students who maybe up until a couple of weeks ago, maybe up until now, like don't know where they're going to be in November, if they're going to be on campus or at home or otherwise. Right. We've already seen some schools send their students home because they couldn't contain outbreaks on campus. Some schools have canceled fall break so that they could send students home after Thanksgiving. But that means that a lot of students who had planned on voting during fall break when they were home now don't have that option. And this is all with the backdrop of the fact that voter registration deadlines are happening like right now. Over the past couple of days and over the next couple of days, a lot of states are going to be requiring people to register to vote. And that means the students have to figure out, okay, where do I think I'm going to be on November 3rd? And where do I think I should vote? And in any given year, college students who are voting for the first time have really unique challenges, one of which is that they had never voted before. Most of them, it's their first major election. So voting itself is new to them. And then they have to figure out the address question. They have to figure out whether their student ID will be accepted as a ballot form of ID at the polls. These are all questions that college students are really grappling with in real time. 
And is there a world where some of these challenges can be so, so difficult, so burdensome that it actually changes in a meaningful way the ability of young people to help shape the election results? What we know this year is that students have a huge potential to make a big difference in the presidential election, especially. Typically, young voters don't show up at the same rates as older voters. But this year, we know that the youth vote could actually make a really big difference, especially in swing states. We saw the number of youth voters turning out to vote in the 2018 elections. That was just a huge jump from previous midterms. And they were an actual key voting block to making sure that House Democrats were victorious and flipped control of the House. And now in the presidential election, likely young voters are leaning very heavily toward Biden. We saw 60% of likely young voters preferring Biden and 27% supporting President Trump, which means that Democrats have a lot to lose when it comes to young voters and the barriers that they're facing to actually turning out to cast their ballot. So if they're dealing with all these complications right now in terms of trying to figure out how to vote in November, what is being done to help fix that? Or is anything being done? So a lot of these students are organizing online. And one of the great things about reporting this story is that you talk to so many really engaged college students who just want to make a difference. And they're just so energized about the opportunity to vote. Like Janae Stagel, who's a student at University of Texas at Austin, she is one of the super active people on campus who actually leads her civic engagement group on campus and is helping other students to vote. Nearly everything that we do in a typical election year where a global pandemic is not in the mix would be primarily in person. So we would table in person on certain locations on campus and we would go into classrooms in person and do registration and also voter education presentations. Um, And then on the last day to register to vote, which for Texas was this past Monday, we would have been on campus until Monday, had a bunch of free pizza for anyone that registered last minute. And so they're filming TikTok videos, YouTube videos, Instagram graphics. They're organizing around Google Forms. We've also created a Canvas module for professors to integrate into their classes. Um, We've been going into classrooms via Zoom um, and doing presentations that way, which which is fun and interesting in its own way. And then we've also been doing the same with org um, meetings going in, presenting and then leaving. It's a lot of these activities that typically would be happening on campus right now. You would be seeing students tabling on the quad, kind of chasing after each other with clipboards, trying to get each other to register to vote. But now it's all happening online. My name is Janice Jefferson. So what we've done at Virginia State University so far is, one, we've got a voter survival guide, um, which basically what that is, is an in-state and out-of-state, since we have both at our institution, guide of how to vote or check your voter registration if you're already voting, but you may have switched addresses or for a lot of students on campus, you're registered under your campus address, but you're now back at home. There is a new Slack community that students have created for each other to try to help each other vote or figure out how to vote. And each state has its own channel within the Slack community. Wow. And these students are just really wanting to support each other and try to figure it out. One challenge that they're facing is that because each state has such different rules, they don't want to confuse each other and lead each other astray. So they're being really mindful about just telling students, okay, here's how you go to your state's election election 
requirements. Here's how to navigate it. And if you have any other questions, let's help each other out. And this sort of online activity is really strong right now. It's not as visible as being on campus, but it definitely exists. So so what were some of these videos that you saw on TikTok? Okay, so there was one video where a woman walks her tortoise named Tiptoe. Hi, and welcome to A Day in the Life of Tiptoe, my 175-pound tortoise. And they what? walk together. <laughs> they walk together to drop off her mail-in ballot to show how easy it is to vote by mail. percent of U.S. citizens eligible to vote actually voted. Neglecting to vote gives others the power to make decisions for you. This can have effects on health insurance, civil rights, the environment. And then after the trip, uh, the tortoise gets strawberries as a treat. Wow, that's so wholesome. (laughs) (laughs) There's another one where a college student who has a following of 1.6 million people on TikTok does a cooking challenge. So he had his followers vote on which ingredients they wanted him to cook with. And it's really random. It's coconut, angel hair pasta, mango, and rice. And he makes some dish out of it, but in turn for his uh, followers to register to vote. And is there a way to gauge how successful those efforts have been so far? One thing you lose by going so online is that it is difficult to keep real-time track of the number of students who are signing up or sending in their mail ballot. For example, when you're looking at a clipboard, you can see the number of names that are actually on your clipboard. But when you're urging each other to do it through TikTok videos, the impact of that is not necessarily visible. Some of these campaigns that keep track of voter turnout by precinct can keep track when they you know, see these college towns actually record votes at the precincts. But when they're relying so much on mail-in ballots, that sort of um, voter turnout is hard to gauge. I miss seeing how excited people were when they got the receipt and they knew with that in their hand that they are registered to vote. Um, Whereas us using a service like TurboVote, we have to tell people the state of Texas doesn't have an alert system to tell you when your form has been received. And uh, it could take several weeks for the website to be registered. So you just, the only way to know is to harass your county, which isn't a very fun response to have to give. So there is something that you lose by not being able to see it in person. Um, But you can actually see a lot of activity. For example, on TikTok, I spent some time just kind of scrolling through with hashtag vote or hashtag voter registration. And there are a lot of videos out there and you could already see a lot of younger voters enthused about the opportunity to vote. So for a college student right now who is trying to figure out what exactly am I going to do to be able to vote? Like, how should I even figure out this question of where to vote in the best format to vote in? What advice do you have for them in in figuring out this uncertain terrain? A lot of them are actually giving the advice to just register at home. For example, Ali Longo, who's a student that I talked to from Columbia College, Chicago, she is one of the student leaders advising other students on how they should navigate this process. And she's worried about potentially stranded ballots if students register to their dorm address, their campus address, and then they're sent home, then there's no way for the school to forward that mail to wherever their students are going to be. And that sucks. And even if we were able to send it back, you know, there's a chance it wouldn't get there in time. So she's advising students who are living on campus to just register at home just in case college housing shuts down before election. This way, their parents can put their ballot into a new envelope and just mail it to them. Or they can vote at home if they're sent home before November 3rd. 
Michelle Lee is a national politics reporter. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And now, one more thing from London correspondent Carla Adam. We've written a few stories in the last few days that have compared and contrasted President Trump and Prime Minister Boris Johnson's experience with testing positive for COVID-19. Hi, folks. I want to bring you up to speed with something that's happening today, which is that I've developed mild symptoms of the coronavirus. That's to say a temperature and a, a persistent cough. I want to thank everybody for the tremendous support. I'm going to Walter Reed Hospital. I think I'm doing very well. I am working from home. I'm self-isolating. And that's entirely the right thing to do. But we're going to make sure that things work out. The First Lady is doing very well. So I want to thank everybody who's involved. I want to thank, of course, above all, our amazing NHS. The two leaders are often compared to one another. There are some similarities. They are both populist. They both seem to have a loose relationship with facts at times. Uh, And there's many differences, too. So we decided we'd look at how Trump and Johnson's experience with COVID was similar and also how their past diverged. If you go back to before Boris Johnson tested positive for COVID-19, that would be earlier in the spring, he was initially cavalier about the virus. He talked about shaking hands with people at a hospital. I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were, a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients and I shook hands with everybody, uh, you'll be pleased to know. And, and I continue to shake hands and uh, uh, I think it's very important that we, you know, people obviously can make up their own minds. I think the Matt has said that people... After he tested positive, he didn't venture out into the public for about a month. I mean, he did send out a few tweets and videos. And of course, there were briefings from Downing Street and other ministers who, you know, were saying that he was in good spirits, just like the the spinners at the White House did with President Trump. The president's been fever-free for over 24 hours. Uh, We remain cautiously optimistic, um, but he's doing great. Do you have an estimate? And even here, when Boris Johnson was in intensive care, Downing Street was still saying that he was in good spirits. The Prime Minister has been following medical advice, and the Prime Minister loves this country. He wants to do his very, very best for us. But we didn't actually see him in public for about a month. He self-isolated in his apartment in Downing Street. His meals were left on a tray outside his door. He did that for 10 days before his symptoms got worse and he was taken to hospital. And there his condition deteriorated quickly. Uh, He would later say that it was touch and go and, you know, that things could have gone either way. If this virus were a physical assailant, an unexpected and invisible mugger, 
which I can tell you from personal experience it is, then this is the moment when we have begun together to wrestle it to the floor. He did personally lead an anti-obesity campaign and has suggested that his susceptibility to the virus was linked to his being overweight. Even if the Boris Johnson government is is taking the pandemic seriously, it's important to stress that it's been widely criticized for how it's handling it. The number of coronavirus cases are rising rapidly. The UK already has the highest death toll in Europe. Hi, perhaps you recognize me. It's your favorite president. And I'm standing in front of the Oval Office at the White House. President Trump, like Boris Johnson, has said that the virus has influenced him. I got back a day ago from Walter Reed Medical Center. I spent four days there. The takeaway that Trump seems to emphasize is that the virus is overblown. Because I feel great. I feel like perfect. So I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it. This was a blessing in disguise. I think it's, it's important to note that the two leaders got the virus at very different times, and Trump is in the middle of a presidential election. So whereas Boris Johnson disappeared from public view for about a month, that's, that's clearly not happening with President Trump. Carla Adam is a London correspondent for The Post. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Last week, we introduced you to a new podcast from The Washington Post, Canary. It's a seven-part series about truth and justice. And once you start listening, you won't be able to stop. All seven episodes of Canary, The Washington Post Investigates, are available now. We'll put a link in our show notes, or you can search Canary in your podcast app. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 